Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. In the 1890s, a Swedish chemist, Savante Arrhenius, estimated that a doubling of CO2 levels in the atmosphere would lead to a five-degree warming effect. People were not so concerned at the time, as such a thing seemed unlikely and maybe even welcomed, but his calculations turned out to be not far off. By the 1930s, British scientist Stuart Callender noted that the United States and the North Atlantic region had already warmed significantly after the Industrial Revolution. In 1988, the hottest year at that point on record, NASA scientist James Hansen said that he was 99% sure that global warming was upon us. In 1989, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, was established under the United Nations to provide a scientific view of climate change and its political and economic impacts. So from 1890s, 100 years later, you get the IPCC, plenty of warning. And where are we today? Very little has been done to address the climate crisis, even though we knew it was coming. My guest today is an old friend. He's been in the trenches fighting for an urgent approach to the climate crisis for decades. He's been at it since the 1960s, trying to sound the alarm. Earl Katz founded and was president of Public Interest Pictures. He's an environmental, social justice, anti-war activist, and Emmy Award-nominated documentary film producer. Earl is executive producer of unprecedented, unconstitutional hacking democracy made for HBO, broadcast blues, heist, and others. He's also the executive producer of four short environmental films films narrated by Leonardo DiCaprio, titled Carbon, Last Hours, Green World Rising, and Restoration. In 2019, he was associate producer of Ice on Fire for HBO. Earl was the U.S. senior staff member of Dai Dong, an NGO that organized and produced the Menton Memorandum that linked the environment, poverty, and war. The statement was initially signed by 2,200 international scientists from 23 countries on both sides of the Iron Curtain. In 1971, it became the cover story and first issue of the UNESCO Courier dedicated to the environment. It was instrumental in 1972, like 50 years ago, in the launch of the UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Programme. Earl served as executive director of the Campaign to Defend America's Environment, a coalition of five leading environmental organizations. He was the entertainment coordinator of the International Earth Day in 2000, and he's been a board member of several NGOs and currently serves as board member of the Carbon Underground. Earl has been at this for like a long time. And where are we now? Now joining us is Earl Katz. Thanks for joining us, Earl. Hi, Jay. Paul J. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after all these years, you still call me Jay. <laughs> what are you going to do? Paul. Yeah, Paul. I, I don't care. Does what do you do when you got two, two first names? So you, you've been at this a long time. Um, this has got to kind of wear you out in a sense that the, uh, the, the science – even by the late 1960s, certainly by this statement in 1972, the science was pretty clear. And, and, and by a decade later, later, it was really clear. Um, how did you become aware of this so early and, and what did you do about it? Well, I graduated with a, a, a bachelor's degree and a dual major of psychology and biology. 
And in biology, we learned about the environment and ecology. And I could see the problems already. In late 1969, uh, my best friend had come back from the Peace Corps in Africa. I was a sales executive with IBM. And uh, we went to the pilot program for Earth Day at Columbia University. Less than a month later, my, my dear friend uh, called me and said he's becoming a European organizer of a transnational peace environmental organization. And they, need, they needed someone to be the U.S. representative and to be the global fundraiser. We were based in Brussels and in Nyack, Nyack New York, which is where I worked out of. And what, what year are we in again? This was... Over the over the Christmas holidays in '69. So this is the, the the Vietnam War is raging. Yes, and the parent organization of our environmental peace organization was the umbrella group for the anti-war movement. We organized the peace marches to Washington, uh, developed draft counseling uh, along with American Friends Service Committee. So that was our national program, working to end the war, and the international program was anti-war environmental. Now, when you say environmental, how much of that was climate crisis and how much of that was pollution issues? Because how, how aware were you of the climate danger at that point? We were quite aware. I mean, the I think I sent you a, a, a little... A little piece about the Montan Statement, which which was caps encapsulated in the uh, UNESCO Courier. Uh, we were the we were the uh, cover story, and it was uh, billed as a message to our three and a half billion neighbors. But one of the scientists, part of my job was to meet with scientists in the United States. When there were four European organizers, people working in Africa and Asia as well, and. Uh, Paul Ehrlich was one of our signatories, and Paul Ehrlich uh, exposed us to the problems of climate change. In fact, he wrote about it in his book, The Population Bomb. And in the in the in the full version of uh, the the Montan Statement, uh, we talk about carbon dioxide from automobiles and other sources building up in the Earth's atmosphere, and that within the next 30 years, it's expected to increase by 25%. I believe it increased a lot more. Um, and it's forming a film around the Earth. It's almost certain to change the world climate. And then we talked about the, uh, the, the carbon dioxide from factories and cities and, uh, you know, accumulating in the atmosphere. And um, here we are today. So this is 1972, like 50 years ago. Well, actually, the statement, I call it the Montan Statement. Uh, UNESCO Carrier calls it the Montan Message. This was 1971 that we finished uh, the statement. So uh, how dangerous did you think it was then? I mean, was it uh, just one of a lot of issues? Do you, when, do you start, when do you start to get this is actually an existential problem as, as, as we most of us seem to understand now, not that it's changing by that much what's actually happening. Well, we knew about it. We knew it was a danger. The science had, had in fact been proven uh, by the scientist Svante uh, Aranis that you mentioned, who, by the way, Greta Thunberg's father's name is Svante, and that's because the man who, who really first uh, discovered uh, 
climate change and, and the fact that we're heating the atmosphere with CO2 and other greenhouse gases was uh, Greta's uh, grandfather or great-grandfather. I'm not sure which. But her father's named after him, Svante. That's that's really an interesting. In her, she's got in her DNA fighting on these issues. So, so seventy one's a statement. Um, the war is raging. So, I mean, the war is very preoccupying. Um, when when does when do you start to really click for yourself? This is this is like your mission to 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 be fighting to to change on this, and, and then in eighty eight. When Hansen makes his statement, uh, between the lead up to the 88 Hansen statement, uh, what do you do and, and, and what's happening in terms of the, uh, the sort of what amounts to denial? I know in, and during the period myself, personally, I used to hear little bits about it. But I kind of dismissed it, honestly. The, the war was going on. There was so much happening. And I, I know myself and a lot of people I knew that were involved in the anti-war movement. We all kind of thought, Gee, you know, if it's really so serious, even the capitalists are going to have to deal with it. You know, they can't risk uh, the, the, the worst effects here. So we don't have to worry about it that much. Uh, th- that turned out to be true. I was worried about it uh, from, from having interacted with Paul Ehrlich and understanding the science. The main message of the Montan statement is that, that all, all of mankind's problems are inextricably related. And, you know, from from pollution to poverty to, uh, you know, all of our problems are in health. They're all inextricably related. And the point of the Montan statement was that a necessary precondition for solving the panoply of problems facing mankind is the cessation of war. So that, that's really the takeaway from this. So I became deeply involved in the anti-war movement. It's not in my resume, but I was the fundraiser for a film called The Winter Soldier Investigation, uh, which where uh, dozens of uh, Vietnam veterans gave testimony to their personal war crime atrocities. And when the film was done, I gave it to John Kerry, who was then the head of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Uh, so the only way we can really deal with climate change now is to stop doing the destructive things that are causing it. It's very, very late. In fact, I think it's too late uh, because of something called latent heat. I can go into that later. And I'm not the only one that thinks it's too late. Uh, But whatever we can do to ameliorate the problem, uh, we should be doing. But as long as we we are a warrior nation, as long as we're killing one another, we're not going to be saving humanity or the planet itself, possibly, there's a good chance this planet can turn into Venus with runaway climate change. Which would look like what? Hotter than hell. <laughs> Hotter than hell. So give us the big beats on the last you know, 20, 30 years about what's been discovered in the science, and then let's get into what could be done. The science is clear. Um the IPCC report from the UN is very clear. There was a, I, I read a very interesting review uh, written by Bill McKibben, who is the founder of 350.org. And it's in the August 20th issue of the New York 
uh, review of books. And he's reviewing a book called Our Final Warring, Six Degrees of Climate Emergencies. He's quoting the author and saying, if we stay on the current business as usual trajectory, which is growth for the sake of growth, increased gross national product, that's my paraphrase, we could see two degrees as soon as the early 2030s, three degrees by mid-century, four degrees by 2075, and so on. If we're unlucky with positive feedbacks, which I know quite a bit about, from the thawing permafrost in the Arctic, collapsing tropical rainforests, then we could be in for five or six degrees by the end of the century. We can't live in that kind of world, a world that's that hot. We can't grow crops. And you're talking about the lifetime of our kids. Absolutely. So if the science is so clear... Why is there so little being done? Uh, you know, we, all of a sudden, Biden has a kind of climate plan. Um, it's it's clearly not enough to rise to the occasion. Um, Obama and Biden, but Obama saw all this data. There has nothing really that new has emerged in the science since Obama was president. Uh, and ever, the measures he took were beyond modest, uh, even, even in terms of his bully pulpit. I, I went back when he was, uh, before he left the presidency, and I looked at about four or five of his State of the Unions. And climate in, in almost all the State of the Unions, but one, barely got more than two paragraphs, often one paragraph. And in the one State of the Union where it wasn't one or two paragraphs, it was because there was none. Um, how now he's a smart guy, and I'm not just trying to isolate him individually, but in terms of he represents a stratum of really smart, intelligent people who have access to tons of information and power and didn't even use their position to get people alarmed, never mind actually take some action. Uh, you know some of these people. How do you explain what that what goes on in their heads? Well, it'd be better to talk to Van Jones than to me about it. Van was President Obama's climate guy, and, and he really won't say anything negative about the pres President Obama. He, he won't say much negative at all about the Democratic Party. So. That's right. That's right. So I don't know if you were old enough to remember when Khrushchev came to this country. He said, I don't want to meet with the president. I want to meet with the captains of industry because that's who really runs the country. And we're still there. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. But they're not they're not stupid people, the captains of industry. Some of them are no well aware of of the climate issue and you know other than some lip service and some sort of greenwashing uh very little serious happening uh, from any of them you cannot underestimate greed When I was working on the Montan Statement and their parent organization, which was called Daidong, Daidong De Joy, uh, was the parent organization of the Montan Statement, and Daidong was a project of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation. I was sent to a conference by a granddaughter of John D. Rockefeller, and it was in Washington, D.C., it was a meeting of an organization called the Federal Union. Any information about this online has been eliminated. People at the Heritage Society, there's rooms of people that are doing that, eliminating our history. So we had to read a book uh, 
prior to going to this conference, I was able to bring a guest who has since passed away. And the book was called Famine 1975, written by two brothers who worked at the State Department, William and Paul S. Paddock, one of whom was an agronomist. And the book essentially uh, was the same as the, the full Montan statement saying there's going to be massive population increase, there's going to be resource depletion, there's going to be water scarcity, there's going to be mass migrations due to the environmental uh, causes. And this was a conference of 100, 125 people were invited. I was sitting next to the heiress of Krupp's armaments through most of it. There were four-star generals there. They were very powerful people, not me. The last day of the conference, they brought out some people from NASA. And the NASA people had mock-ups, little models of the space shuttle. And they said, well, we've read the book. We understand what's going to happen. It's going to be runaway population growth, runaway resource depletion, runaway problems, increased war. If you use your influence to help make sure that the space shuttle gets funded, we will be able to build orbiting space station around the planet. And we can build many of them because the space shuttle enables us to have enormous thrust. And some of us will be able to live there while chaos reigns on the Earth. And moreover, it'll be easy to colonize the moon and possibly Mars because you don't need much thrust once you're outside of the atmosphere. It was then that I knew things are in real trouble. <laughs> That's crazy. And I was, I was, uh, there was an open mic and people were advocating, you know, totally bought in. I got up and I said, look, as far as I know, uh, we have... We have everything here on Earth. We need to make paradise on Earth. At least that's what Buckminster Fuller says, who was one of the signers of the Montan Statement. And we can create paradise here on Earth. It's folly to try to go to space. And, and you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. I'm not a scientist, but I think, you know, there'll be problems with weightlessness. Uh, what will it do to our skeletal systems? What about solar radiation? The NASA scientists snowed me with scientific jargon that I had no idea what they were talking about. Then a little man got up and went to the microphone, and he said, I'm a scientist. My name is Harold Urey. Harold Urey is, was one of the top five scientists in the Manhattan Project. He's a Nobel Prize winner. And he said, if this is what the Federal Union has in mind, I hereby resign, and he walked out. So what it is is the captains of industry – and the super wealthy have what's known in the environmental world as a bunker mentality, that with enough money, they'll be able to ride out, you know, the, the coming environmental uh, deterioration, whether it be orbiting in a space station, in an old Nike missile silo that's been uh, totally tricked out, with its own ventilation systems and stocked with food and water for decades. But they have this bunker mentality. And that's what's prevented us from doing something about it. That and the fact that the fossil fuel industry has mounted a massive disinformation program about the dangers of climate change. And that's kind of ironic because not only have they not done anything significant on climate, 
they're nowhere near having space stations and they're not even very good at building bunkers. I mean, the whole thing is they're, they're so short sighted. All right. L- l- let's talk about where we're at. If, if Trump wins again, there's there's like no conversation to be had about climate policy in the United States and the situation's going to deteriorate even further. Um, but the way things are looking, it's likely to be a Biden presidency. Um, what he's proposed in climate goes further than what he's ever proposed before. Uh, we've done a few stories on this. Uh, what, what's your take, first of all, on what Biden's plans are? I'm not terribly familiar with it, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, but I don't have I don't have that much faith that anything can really be done. I think the die has been cast because the the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere will continue to heat the planet for as much as thousands of years. And the only way we can possibly, possibly survive is through regenerative agriculture which is bringing the carbon down from the atmosphere and putting it back into the soil naturally, reforestation. That made, if it was done on a massive global scale, we might survive. And I say might, but there's no political will for that. You're taking on industrial agriculture. Well, be, be, be concrete, because not everybody's familiar with what this process is. How, would, how does this type of agriculture uh, bring carbon out of the atmosphere at a, at a scale that's necessary? How does it work? There have been white papers written about it. Um, the United Nations has information about it. When you till the soil deeply, you kill all the microbes in the, in the living soil. You kill the worms and you have to put nitrates and, and, and fossil fuel fertilizer to grow the crops. We are losing healthy soil at such an extent that we now have, five years ago, they said we have 60 harvests left. Uh, Now we have 55. But with regenerative agriculture, there's an exchange between the root tips of live plants and fungus deep in the soil that actually pulls the carbon out of the atmosphere and puts it back in the soil. But it has to be done on a massive scale and it has to be done now. So massive scale means what? It means industrial agriculture, which I assume has most of the land being tilled, quote unquote, uh, would have to be made because it wouldn't be profitable, as profitable to do this. Government would have to essentially make American, North American. I assume this really needs to be done on a global scale uh, to have that kind of effect. And and what and, and what would that look like? I mean, I know we're talking politically, this probably isn't possible, but what would it look like if it was? It would look like small little gardens all over the world. Why small? Why can't this be done in big fields and stuff? It takes planting by hand, actually, where you just poke a little hole in the soil and drop a seed rather than tilling. It's uh, very labor intensive. Why does it require that? Why can't that be automated? I don't know that it can or cannot, but I've been told that, I mean, there's a, there's an article, uh, an op-ed written by Eric Utney, who's the, you know, the guy who publishes the Utney Reader in the uh, July 25th issue of the New York Times. It's his op-ed and it's titled Feeling Hopeless, Embrace It. 
And he's saying uh, we need a segue now from techno-industrial market economies to uh, much smaller scale, less energy intensive, localized communities that prize food growing knowledge, sharing and inclusiveness uh, and steward the earth and create small biotic community. Uh, it's the only society that might survive the rocky climate climacteric that is already upon us. Do I have hope now? If hope means the expectation that someone, a new president or something, geoengineering, which I'm totally against, or some other techno fix is going to save us, then no, I'm hopeless rather than hope free. Why are you against geoengineering? At least why shouldn't that be investigated? Because given the scenarios you've laid out, there isn't going to be a scenario that works because the kind of agriculture you're talking about, the kind of uh, economy you're talking about, it, it, it essentially is not something that can happen with this many people, with these big cities and societies. So it may be where there is no way out of this. Uh, that, that may be what the truth of it is. But if there's any possibility, certainly geoengineering might be one of the things that would make it work, seeing as nothing else seems to be able to make it work, except planting tons of trees. I mean, it seems to me that's a very doable proposition, even politically at some point. I mean, before we get into the geoengineering, let's just back up to the tree part. If there was a massive, massive planting of trees around the world, how much effect would that have? It's a question of time. The, the book that uh, Bill McKibben reviewed said, you know, 20 years, we can have a civilization collapse at the outside 40 years. How long does it take to grow a tree? Uh, geoengineering is a Trojan horse. It's been funded primarily by fossil fuel companies, primarily by the Koch brothers. It's the ideal excuse to do business as usual. And rather than allow the industry to continue to act on its own interests, the world has to establish a strong democratic regulatory mechanism, which includes the option to ban these technologies outright. It's okay to try and develop them, but testing them on any kind of significant scale can bring untold horrors. And there's a, a foundation in, in called the Heinrich Ball Stiftung, a green political foundation that funds all the various green parties throughout Europe. They are totally against geoengineering. It can destroy our oceans. It can be used as a weapon of war to create drought in some places and uh, tsunamis in other places. And when I say it's being funded by the fossil fuel companies, you can take that to the bank. It's false hope. So what are we left with? What we're left with really is, is the Gaia principle which was developed by James Lovelock, uh, I think in 69 or 70, British environmentalist. And back then, he posited that the earth is a self-regulating entity that is biophilic, that does what it has to, to create an atmosphere on the planet that is suitable for life to exist. He was uh, scorned at first, but no longer. The Gaia hypothesis has been... Uh, pretty widely embraced. It is a hypothesis. It observes how the biosphere and the evolution of life forms contribute to the stability of global temperature, ocean salinity, oxygen in the atmosphere, and other factors of habitability. 
Lynn Margolis, a microbiologist in the 70s, co-developed it with Lovelock. And it's now being studied in the disciplines of geophysiology, earth system science, and some of its principles have been adopted in fields like biogeochemistry and systems ecology. The ecological hypothesis has also inspired analogies and various interpretations in social sciences, politics, and religion under vague philosophy and movement. The earth does what it has to do to survive and make life possible. But not necessarily for humans. <laughs> That's right. Humans are the problem now. And, and, and with our increased pension, not with our increased, with our pension for continued growth, uh, it's antithetical to an earth in balance. Growth for the sake of growth is the philosophy of the cancer cell. The planet is metastasizing fast. We have to, if the best thing we can do, stop burning fossil fuels almost immediately, as soon as humanly possible, live smaller, develop renewables, do regenerative agriculture, plant trees, have less children, stop putting our resources into a military budget that is wasting our, our, our financial, mental, and humanistic strengths. Thanks for joining us, Earl. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm -hmm.